For those who don't know, Alice Lam is a born and raised Calgarian to Chinese parents who came to Canada as refugees from Vietnam in the 80s. In her day job, she works as a property manager for over 30 commercial buildings in Calgary, but her passion lies in community building. In the past five years, she has started several nonprofits, including VolleyApp.com, a free website to connect volunteers to nonprofits, the Calgary Community Fridge, a barrier-free pantry and fridge in Crescent Heights, as well as Good Neighbor Market, a pay-what-you-want thrift store run by volunteers to provide Calgarians a barrier-free shopping experience regardless of ability to pay. In their first year of operation for this social enterprise, they raised $89,000 and redistributed over 200,000 pieces of clothing and food to the community. Most recently, she's been spending her summer activating the historic Fire Hall Courtyard in downtown Calgary with fun events, free art classes, night markets, and movie nights. So Alice, you've been busy. Yes, I have, but it's been a lot of fun. Well, it sure sounds like it. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? Uh, I've heard it was a Calgary punk forum that we have to thank for your first foray into community work. Can you elaborate on that? And are you still a punk at heart? Oh, I am absolutely a punk at heart. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have enough street cred to be a true punk, but um, yeah, we were, you know, I was an angsty 13 year old, 14 year old looking for a place to find friends and community and calgarypunk.com was that place. And so, um, I really got into it the summer before grade 10, I was going to a new high school. It was the first time in 10 years that I would be at a new school meeting new people and I was scared to death. And so we had been lurking on this forum for a while for people who don't know, it's kind of a place where you could talk about like punk shows that were happening, all ages, uh, DIY shows were all the rage back in the eighties and the nineties. And, um, I just put a post up being like, hey, is anybody going to Western Canada High School? <laughs> and a few people responded. And so we met up at the school and they were the ones who introduced me and invited me to my first all ages show at Carpenters Union Hall. And that the rest is history. We started going to the shows, meeting people from all over the city. And then eventually we decided to start promoting our own show. So we started planning events ourselves. And that was really where I learned the nuts and bolts of how to plan and execute, you know, a fun event. So what are the nuts and bolts of planning and executing a fun event? So knowing your audience, that's really important. I think um, having really good communication and bringing something that hasn't been done before, you know, is something that is a common theme and then being really organized, right? Like it's kind of like planning a wedding. You got to book the venue, you got to pay the deposit, you know, make the poster. We used to go around 17th Avenue in Kensington, just nailing posters to those different bulletin boards. Um, you had to make sure you had enough volunteers, like somebody working the door, somebody, you know, checking the sound system, setting it all up. So it was quite the production, uh, for like a four hour event on a Friday night at a community center. Right. So we learned a lot and a big part of, um, a lot of the shows was we always kind of donated something back to a nonprofit or a mutual aid initiative. So there was always money being raised for something or another. And that really, um, left an impression on me, like how important it is that whatever we're doing, it should always have an impact on our community, big or small. So why do you believe that? I think it's just important. I think you could say that it's from growing up in, you know, with a desire to build community, like watching movies where that's happened. I say this all the time, but yeah, the Sister Act movie really made an impression on me. I know it's hilarious, but there's a scene that like makes me tear up all the time where 
they're opening the doors of this old cathedral and they're cleaning up the neighborhood and creating a space for people to gather and make friends and build community. And I'm like, I want that. Like, I want people to have the chance to meet each other and see where their lives go. You know, I think it's really common and really easy for us to all live in our bubbles and our safety zone. And it's safe, but predictable. And sometimes it gets a little boring. And so I think that the more opportunities we have to kind of inspire people to leave their homes and go into their neighborhoods and either volunteer or attend an event and maybe one day feel confident enough to like make or plan their own thing, we just benefit more as a city. So you really do practice what you preach because I've heard that you've left and lived in every quadrant of the city. Is that right? That is right. I think like, well, Southeast technically I never lived in, but my family owned a business there. So we basically were there all the time between the ages of 10 to 12. And so, yeah, Northwest, like suburbia all the way to Marlboro. Um, that's where I grew up and the first, you know, eight years of my life and then lived in Mission. And now my parents live in Elbow Park. I went to school in the Southwest. So every day my parents would drive me from Marlboro to basically the Rideau, Roxborough area, 30 minutes. And I got to pass through the city every day, twice a day on a 30 minute car ride. Um, and my parents also, their first business was like cleaning company. And so we typically as immigrant kids, like we just accompanied them wherever we went. So I got to see a lot of the city that I think even to this day, a lot of people who live in the suburbs haven't been to Chinatown or haven't been to the North. If they live in the South, they haven't been to the North. And so, um, I am really passionate about just trying to get people out of their neighborhoods and into other parts of the city as much as possible, or simply just in their neighborhoods more, because even that is a lot to ask for sometimes. So in the interest of promoting cross-quadrant uh, interaction, what would you say about each of the quadrants to the other ones to say, you should go check this out there? Northeast is definitely like a cultural mecca. Like there's so many amazing things that are happening. It's so diverse. Like International Avenue is super well-known. You have Little Saigon over there, they just created this really amazing public art piece commemorating the boat people who came to, you know, like my parents who came to um, Calgary in the 80s as refugees. Um, they have some of the best food on that strip. You know, um, there's a lot of cool nonprofits like the Alex Food Center is over there. You have Antics Art that does art programming with youth. Um, you know, Forest Lawn High School, there's a lot of cool programming that's happening there now. And so I love the Northeast for that, but also the new Northeast, which is like spreading, you know, north of Prairie Winds Park, like you're t talking Saddletown and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you have Genesis Center, which when I went to visit Genesis Center for the first time as a volunteer, I'd never heard of it. And I was just amazed. I was like, why don't we have something like this downtown, you know, where it's like a sports recreation center with a library, with like public space for gathering that's open to the public. People just hang out there all day long. And I love that. And they also had social services, which is really important. So taking that model and trying to replicate that in downtown is kind of like what we're trying to do with Good Neighbor and the Fire Hall. It, it's We don't have the infrastructure to make it as beautiful and you know accessible as the Genesis Center is, but it's that idea of bringing services together that would benefit a large number of people and also having social services around so that if people require you know, housing referrals, needs assessments, food bank referrals, whatever it is, like it's also there at the same time. We're trying talking about lifting people up into a more equitable status. So yeah, 
I could go through each of the quadrants if you want. I don't know. Um, I love the river systems. I love the bike pathways. I love, you know, I don't bike on a regular basis, but when I do, it's always along the pathways. I'm so grateful that Calgary has that. Obviously, I'm in love with Chinatown and the 120 plus years of history that it represents. And the more I learn about it, the more I actually learn learn about Calgary's history as well and, and our Indigenous history as well, which is really important. And through my day job, I travel all around the city all the time, right? 30 properties peppered also in every quadrant in the city. So I don't know. There's something cool and unique that every community has to offer. Um, one way that I find out about a lot of these communities is through Jane's walks that the Calgary foundation puts on every year. And so I went on one with then at the time, counselor Jody Gondek in ward three. And, you know, at that time I was just like, most Calgarians like what's cool about the suburbs. I'm not sure, you know, isn't it just all single family homes, front garages. But when I went there and you meet the people, you realize like there is just so I understand why people would love to live there. You know, there is this sense of belonging and this sense of community that they've built for themselves. And, the passion is what's attractive, right? Like whatever, whether you go to an event or you go to a talk, like you hear somebody's passion and their heart through it. And it's like, now I think Coventry Hills is really cool, you know? And they have that, the longest mural I think in Canada is in Coventry Hills, which is really neat, painted by volunteers. We got to paint a little piece of um, Chinatown history on that wall as well. And so yeah, I don't know. I feel like I could go forever, but I'll leave that at that for now. <laughs> yeah, we, we've only got about an hour or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut you off there. Yeah. Um, but just a big 10,000 foot view then. You know, yeah. you've written that you're Calgary's biggest fan. I think there's a lot of people claiming that title. What's one thing you love about the city? I think that this city is a place, and I've lived in other cities and other countries around the world, I feel like Calgary is genuinely a place where you can make anything happen. Like if you have a dream for a social endeavor or a business, or you want to, you know, you're super passionate about something, like you can make it happen here. There's tons of opportunity. It just takes meeting the right people. And that's why I'm so passionate about getting people into their communities and like basically meeting each other, right? Because you never know what kind of sparks will fly, what kind of ideas can, you know, come out of it. And um, Calgary is still really young compared to a lot of other major cities. And we're, we, you know, people give it flack all the time for just being, just being an oil and gas city, but that was, you know, something that was really important to the city and building it for a long time. And I think right now we have a lot of community members and a lot of like politicians who are also really invested in changing the narrative of the city just, or rather adding to it. And giving people more opportunity, like even this summer, like if you were around Calgary, just being able to attend all the events from Sled Island to Folk Fest to like Kari Fest at Shaw Millennium Park last weekend to the Chinatown Street Festival this weekend. There's going to be like Arab Festival. Like there's just so much happening. It just speaks to the cultural diversity of our communities. And I think that's really cool. Like that's really, really important. And Calgary has big city amenities, but I say a small town feel, so that's what I think is cool about it. <laughs> right. I, I love that um, because I've heard a lot of people say that it's it's a big city, but it's also a small city in a sense, right? And I've heard you say before that we want to try and make Calgary its own thing and not have it turn into Toronto or Vancouver. Mm. You want to kind of elaborate on your vision of that? Yeah. I think that really when I talk about not wanting to turn into Vancouver and Toronto, like I absolutely love like the arts and culture investment that they have in those cities. They have 
world-class, you know, stadiums and entertainment structures and sports centers that are really important to the growth of a vibrant city. Um, I would say that what I'm fearful of is the increasing class divide that we notice in Vancouver and in Toronto. There's lots of um, chronic homelessness that is continuing to grow. There's a lot of encampments that are popping up and it seems like the governments in Toronto and Vancouver are just struggling to kind of solve it systemically. And I know that Calgary is not yet at this point, but if you travel along Memorial Drive, you'll see encampments during the summertime. People just have nowhere to go. And so I really want Alberta or Calgary to really invest in infrastructure or housing or, you know, income policies that would allow people to actually afford to live here. Because as we saw this, like this past six months, there's been an insane housing boom in the city. And I mentioned this earlier, but you know, I have friends that can't, you know, their mortgage went up by $500 this month. Like, even if you have a job, that's a large amount of money that you may not have saved for, especially coming out of a pandemic. And so it's, people are a lot closer to losing their homes and losing their cars and losing their jobs now more than ever. And I'm just fearful that we don't have enough solutions for them and it will just exacerbate into poor mental health or, you know, more demand for shelters that we don't have. We're not building fast enough. So, yeah. Well, I think not to be all doom and gloom, but you're definitely someone (laughs) who I think is not waiting for the government to kind of fix things on their own because you've done so much. Uh, Let's talk a bit about some of the things you've done. So Mm -hmm. for those who don't know, what is VolleyApp? Yeah, so Volley started uh, back in 2014 when I moved back to Calgary. I really wanted to make like a Tinder for volunteering app. I wanted um, people to not have to spend so much time looking for volunteer opportunities and just get out into their communities volunteering. And whether it was like a one-time event kind of volunteering or something that they could could commit to on a weekly basis. Um, having volunteered quite a bit, I understood that a lot of nonprofits also, you know, they have a hard time recruiting because they just don't have time or the position to like recruit volunteers. Like usually the person recruiting volunteers of volunteer themselves. And so I just really wanted a, to raise awareness of the numerous nonprofits that don't have a budget for advertising, don't have a budget for staff, but also just making it more simple for Calgarians. And over the past few years because of the pandemic, like we've really turned into more of like a community events planner, I guess, you know, we try to create, you know, we had our campaign for a thousand bouquets for seniors. We did the face mask sewing with nonprofits. We started the community fridge and good neighbor. So we have our own local projects that we do, but ultimately it's just a website for you to easily find volunteer opportunities and nonprofits don't have to pay to post to it. Um, and yeah, it's been, we're going into our fourth year and it feels like it's been much longer than that. So I have to say the, the comparison with Tinder kind of makes my skin crawl because Tinder just makes me depressed. So am I going <laughs> to yeah. get that getting on there? Pardon? Am I going to feel depressed when I go on volume? No, up? you're going to be inspired. You're going to see lots of cool nonprofits that you may or may not have heard about. We also have like lots of mutual aid organizations that post to our website as well. And I think it's just cool to see that there's, a, there's something for everyone and we really try to keep it that way. I'm um, trying to make it as engaging as possible. And also, um, I try to post as much family volunteering opportunities as possible because a lot of volunteering, you can't bring your kids or, you know, you have to be of a certain age. And I think that the more opportunities that we have where families can volunteer together becomes an activity. It makes it easier for families to do because they don't have to find a sitter or, you know, we hear that a lot where it's like, I'd volunteer if I didn't have to like 
find something for my kids to do. I'm like, bring your kids. Like, let's do this together. We're pulling weeds today. So today I was at the sculpture park before this um, recording and we were just pulling weeds and like kids were doing it too, you know, and that's, it's fun for the whole family to kind of contribute to something together. So I think it'd be inspiring, not depressing. Okay. Glad to hear it then. Yeah. And it's also great seeing families come out and do that because I think it's, it's sort of a generational teaching tool as well. Right. Um, we, we tend to segregate ourselves along age and class and all these other different, um, individualities when we could all just be coming together to volunteer. Mm -hmm. So that's a great idea. Um, my two cents, not that anyone asked. Uh, so let's talk a bit about the community fridge stuff. Can you tell everyone about that? Yeah. So basically during the pandemic in 2020, I had a few friends who had kind of seen my different um, volunteer initiatives. And when they saw community fridges being started in Toronto and New York and stuff, they said, you know, could we do that here? I think that there's a need, like there's so much food waste. Um, Let's brainstorm about it. So I got the crew together and I was like, okay, like what would we need to do to make this happen? And it's the first one in Calgary. So we got so many questions and we, you know, faced a lot of barriers, right? We had to find a good location. We had to make sure that we built it. How would it survive in Calgary's winter? Um, and how do you really make something that's barrier free, right? And food is so political and people are really judgmental about food and who has access to it and who deserves what and how much you should be taking. And the fridge really challenges a lot of that because it's basically just like an outdoor fridge and pantry. People can take as little or as much as they want. People can leave nothing or they can leave bags of groceries if they like. It's really, there's no policing system, you know, there's no um, verification of income or anything like that. It's really by the community for the community. And it's been interesting, the feedback that we've gotten from people who, you know, pass by the fridge or donate to the fridge, because a lot of the times people feel really uncomfortable with how they perceive a certain family might be taking too much. And it's, it's really interesting how as humans, you know, in a capitalistic society, we're really like born and bred to think in a scarcity mentality where it's like, if I don't, you know, if I don't take this now, then I may never get it again. And especially when you're low income, it's really true, right? Like if you see four loaves of bread, well, I'm going to take all four of them because I'm going to freeze three of them because I don't know when I'll get another chance. And because our fridge is oftentimes empty, like we have over a hundred people coming to the fridge every day. Most of them will find that it's empty because it's the size of a residential fridge and some shelves, you know? So it's not the solution to end hunger and homelessness. And that's what we try to explain. It's just another way to redirect food that would have gone to the landfills. It's a way for neighbors to help each other. And it's also a way for us to have this conversation. Like, why is the demand growing so much? What's happening in our economy? What's happening in our communities to make it so that seniors can't afford to buy food and medication, or they have to choose between the two, right? What, why do immigrant families have to come to the fridge and they wait all day sometimes with their children. It's the saddest thing ever. And why does demand keep growing? And a lot of it does come back to systemic policy. And um, that's what we kind of use it for, you know, like as it's a symbol of what it could be, like how we can help each other, just like little free libraries for books. I always say like, you don't stand around and judge how many books people are taking, right? Like you just I kinda, do. You I, do? Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes the books don't get taken at all. And, you know, I think that would you care if somebody took the books and sold them? I don't know. Because we get that a lot too, like where people are like, I bet they're selling the food. There's no way they can eat all this food. And it's like, well, we don't know who they are. Like, we don't know if they're representing a group of 20 families, a group of five families. It, it really doesn't matter. Cause like you have to come to the fridge with this non-judgment mentality as much 
as difficult as it is. I'd also challenge those people and just say it seems like if someone's desperate enough to take food and then resell it, they're not in a good enough place that we should be asking too many questions anyway. Yeah, like what good does it do? I always, you know, what we follow them home and see that they actually really needed the food and then you feel like a dick, you know? (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that's, you know, what's it to you? You know, either if you want it, like we understand that the method of the fridge will not be the right way people want to contribute back to society. And that's okay. We have enough people who do like it, you know? And so, um, it's not the perfect solution again, to end homelessness or hunger. Cause that's not what our job is. It's really like in an ideal world, if everybody could afford to pay for food and everything like that, we would still want the fridges to exist because, you know, you can redirect foods that you grow in your garden. You can share things with your neighbors. You bought that, pack of packaged granola bars and you hate the flavor you can bring it to the fridge and share it right like it's just it has it serves other purposes as well but right now i think it the anxiety that people have with regards to like these mutual aid things where it's you know barrier free and um there's no real safeguards in place from people exploiting it 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 can be uncomfortable to witness now you said something a little earlier that i thought was interesting which is that food is political can you elaborate on that Yeah, like I think um, we definitely produce and have enough food to feed everybody in Canada if we wanted to, but based on how our market system works, like it's not attainable to everybody. And there's so, there's tons and tons of food that gets thrown into the garbage every day. And we've seen it because we rescue the food, like we have contracts with. Um, Leftovers Foundation, they bring food from different grocery stores, different bakeries that would have just thrown out the food. Like it's it's a lot of food that comes to our fridge every day and comes to Good Neighbor. And the same thing, like we have Costco's that's um, redirecting a lot of food. And these are the people that redirect it. There's a lot of stores and a lot of restaurants that just throw it out because that's the easiest thing to do. And so when I say that it's political, I mean that people, because they struggle so much to get food and to control it, it has this added layer of like judgment that comes with it. And it's also something that um, creates a lot of divisiveness between people. And so it is like either if you support, you're on one side of the banner, if you support free food for everybody, you're on the other side, you think people should earn their food or whatever. And the thing isn't that people don't want to earn their food or that they are lazy and they want free food all the time. It's the fact that there's high unemployment rates food costs have increased dramatically. Like we've heard all summer about inflation and the cost of food. Our utilities bills have gone up. Like there's all these other factors that contribute to why somebody would need food from a fridge or would have to access the food bank, you know? And there's a lot of stigma involved as well. Like there's tons of people who come to the fridge who would qualify to go to the food bank, but mentally and psychologically, like they just can't go there. Like, and there's also a lot of physical barriers too. Like if you're a senior or you're a mom with a stroller, it's not easy for you to go to the food bank to get it, you know, to get the food. And during the pandemic, they had a pilot where the food bank would deliver hampers, which was really good. It broke down the barriers and lots of people utilized it. But unfortunately, funding for that program didn't persist. And so now they're going back to, you have to go to the depot. And so imagine lugging like 20 pounds of food on a bus. You have a walker, you, you know, it just, it's not accessible for people. And, um, yeah, just, knowing how much food waste there is and how much food just literally goes into the dumpster every day. Like, I think it 
should be illegal for companies to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talked a lot about it, but it's like, you know, if we had political will, like that could change, right? All it would take is a policy to say, just like you have to do single stream recycling now, just like you have to do composting, it's like redirect food that is still edible to local nonprofits. And the cost should be on the grocery stores or the, you know, the companies to figure out how to do that. And there's plenty of people who would come and rescue it from you, you know, and help you and be a partner. But instead of being a leader in it, they're kind of just reactive and waiting for it. There's something that Superstore has come out with called flash food. And so basically it's food that it's still good, but they sell for half price. So you buy it off this app and then you go to the store and you pick it out of this special um, refrigerator. There's a fridge there, yeah. Yeah, there's a special fridge. But again, it's like, is it the most equitable and accessible? Because the people who actually need it probably don't have a smartphone to download the app and you know process it or don't have a credit card to do the payment, mm. which the payment process has to be. So um, yeah, I think that, again, with the fridge, it's just like a symbol to everybody. Like we really should be paying attention because each of us could fall into the situation where we're precarious with our income and we need food and can't afford it. And I'm just trying to set up some safeguards in place in our society where like, if I fall into that position, I have somewhere to go from a very selfish reason. You know, I'm just like, Mm. I need more supports out there because like this could happen to my friends. This could happen to people that we know. Um, and really lucky to not have been in that situation, but I don't want to take that for granted. You know, things change all the time. There were lots of people during the pandemic who thought they would never lose their jobs or they would get it back within 10 months and they never did. And they are now struggling. So now I know at TED, we're all about ideas we're spreading, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an idea that has spread uh, quite far from what you were telling me earlier. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So when we started the fridge, we never wanted to be like the gatekeepers of the fridge system. Like we learned how to do it. We figured out all the barriers. We worked with the city, that kind of thing. And we decided that we're all volunteer run. We do not have time to like manage 20 fridges in the city. And so what we did was we created a startup guide. It basically talked about how to find a location, how to build. We had blueprints for how to build the little shed. We had um, ideas for winterization and, you know, volunteer policies, all that stuff in a little handbook for you to take as inspiration, use it if it helps you, and then start your own idea. And I think a big part of it was not only not wanting to be responsible for all of it, but knowing that it's more successful as the, if the community takes care of it, that li- you know, where the fridge lives. Um, and an interesting byproduct that has happened out of that is during the 2020 to 2021, we've talked to people in Kelowna, Vancouver, um, Hamilton, London, Ontario, Edmonton, Regina, Winnipeg about starting fridges on their own and they've started them. And so it's been really cool that this type of work has had like a cross border, cross interprovincial kind of, um, impact and, it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't from the New York and Toronto fridges sharing how they did it. You know, they do it a little bit differently. They don't necessarily have a fridge. It's more of a pantry system, but it's because they were so willing to share resources and just knowing that like, we don't have to be competitive about this. You know, we don't have to gatekeep this information because it's literally just about getting food to people. So the faster we can do it and the easier we can make it, the more likely it will to have, it will happen. So that's, yeah, that's been really cool. So at least in that one aspect, you kind of want Calgary to be more like Toronto then. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> now, uh, I've got to say, when I first heard about a volunteer pay what you want thrift store, I thought it was a noble idea, but couldn't imagine how it was going to stay afloat. But Good Neighbor Market, which started in July of last year, has been going strong for more than a year now. So what's the secret to its success? It's a lot of, it's like having a baby. Like you are spending a lot of time with it and also really making sure that um, you have a good team around you. Like we have close to 60 volunteers that help us make sure the space runs. We only have, we're only open three days a week. I think the other part of it is sticking to kind of what our core values are and what we can handle and not being sucked into the mentality of like, well, why aren't you open seven days a week? Why don't you put price tags on stuff? Why don't you limit the number of things people can take, you know, um, and really just sticking with what we think is correct and how we want to do things. And that is that it is pay what you want, regardless of how many items you take. If it's, you pay nothing, that's fine. Um, it can, similar to the fridge, it's really a big struggle for people sometimes, especially when they're first volunteering to say, wow, that person took like 50 clothing items and they didn't pay anything. And they're kind of in shock, right? Cause it's like, couldn't you, you couldn't give a dollar and it's like, no, they couldn't. And it's not our place to judge, you know? And we've also had situations again, where people don't give anything for a few months and then people get really annoyed because it's like, oh, this seems like this person is taking advantage, but it's really just your perception. And then they come in and they end up giving a donation of like $50. And then you're like, okay, well now wish I didn't think that of them. Right. So it's really, it challenges your thinking process about a lot of people. And it's, um, it's also just not getting too jaded and not too bitter, just understanding that this is a, problem larger than us and we can't solve it on our own but again similar to the fridge it's a, every opportunity that we have to talk to the media about it we try to bring it home again how we need to work on you know higher income supports for seniors or for people with disabilities we need better like access to pharmaceuticals um we need more affordable housing or housing caps so that people you know they have money they're not homeless like i would say 60 percent of our um clientele all have money and they all have a roof over their heads but how much money it's like twelve hundred dollars a month in total rent plus whatever else they have to pay for like food and all of that and so they have to be really careful about budgeting and so if they can get their clothes for free or maybe they can make a few bucks off of getting clothes from us and like selling it whatever you know that's if that's what they need to survive so that they don't fall into chronic homelessness and then end up on the streets then i'm like it's a small price to pay well, we're not paying for the clothes anyways, right? It's like through donations of Calgary. And so that's what they really have to remember is that we're trying to keep people out of homelessness as much as possible. And like, this is just one way that we're doing it. Now, one thing that I found interesting about everything that we've talked about so far is the recurring issue with people's perceptions of what does poverty look like? What does food insecurity look like? Uh, what are your thoughts on that and how can we change or have a culture shift around the perceptions of poverty, homelessness, uh, food insecurity? I think that there is like a media kind of perception of what homelessness look, looks like, right? It's like the old man dragging a cart around with a toque on his head, scraggly beard. Um, it's snowing. It's always winter. <laughs> and that's just simply one I don't even know, like one out of 10 different like possible homelessness scenarios. I would say that I used to be in the same vein, you know, where it's like, okay, homelessness are just the people that we see on the street, you know, the ones panhandling, the ones 
uh, lining up at the drop-in center and it's it's simply not the case and it if it wasn't for volunteering I probably never would have opened my eyes to the vast definition of what homelessness actually means especially the ones who are like parents sleeping in cars with their kids that happens a lot more um women fleeing domestic violence who are um staying at the emergency shelter you have youth like a lot of queer youth who are kicked out of their homes, couch surfing with friends, like they're homeless, you know, they have nowhere to go. And so with every shelter being at the brim, you know, it's, it's pretty scary to think that, um, people simply don't believe in policies that would help solve homelessness because they have a perception of who's deserving of help and who's not. So, you know, unless people start showing more pictures of like homeless women and children, like, are they going to react? You know, does it take having like this, emotional picture like world vision style in order for you to kind of contribute right it's like and I don't blame them I I had the same stigmas and the same perceptions prior to me learning more about the sector and so it is it is terrifying to me because I'm seeing more and more women you know and more and more children and more and more families and seniors that are falling into this um, scenario but I wish we had an outlet to better tell the stories and to better show Calgarians like this. No, this is what homelessness looks like. You know, I had um, friends that are currently technically homeless because they're in between apartments, you know, like they can't, they were renting at $1,100 a month or 900 a month or whatever. And then two years later, the lease is up and it's jumped up to 1500. So it's impossible for them. Their wage hasn't increased by that much. And they don't have a ton of savings. A lot of them are graduating with student debt and that's where money's going. And so with that and the increase of fuel and food and everything, you know, it's way easier to fall into homelessness than you think. And it's it, maybe calling it homelessness is just like bad branding. It's really just like housing security. Like we are not, we are insecure <laughs> with our housing, you know, um, it's the times are changing. It's scary. Well, that's depressing. Yeah, it is. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I, I think, you know, we we live in a very happy-go-lucky world a lot of times, and yeah. it's sort of important to expose ourselves to these things. And that's one of the things I want to ask you is because, you know, you're saying you had this shift in perception that happened through volunteering, mm -hmm. uh, but not everyone volunteers as much as you do. Yeah. So how do we get people to experience their own shift in perception in a way that's not you, you know, manipulating them by, by playing string quartet yeah. music over, you know, starving children on a, a commercial yeah. somewhere. I think it's opportunities like this, honestly, like the fact that there's like people who care about the story and want to share it is one big step. Like having, you know, the story being told and represented in media accurately and not just like your stereotypes is super important. And for me, anytime I do a podcast or a media or like, you know, an article or whatever, like it's really about educating, you know, and hopefully that when that person reads it, um, it challenges the way they think and they, it help, helps them to think more introspectively like, oh, did I have some of those same judgments or do I have some in, you know, inherent prejudices that I never really thought about regarding my fellow community member, you know, it's so easy. I think that a group that does it really well is like Bear Clan Patrol. I've learned so much from them because these are literally the folks 
going out patrolling provide and like when they're not patrolling they're like providing food hampers to families all around the city regardless of who they are or where they come from again no questions asked and it's like yeah it's sad to live in a world where we don't care about our neighbors anymore you know and it it's not just a, oh, well, if they worked hard enough or if they just cared about themselves enough or if they had some self-respect, they would definitely be out of the situation. And like, it's more complex. And I, I don't wish that on anybody to have to go through it in order to realize um, just how many things are going working against you when you're trying to get better or when you're trying to get out of a difficult economic situation. So yeah, I think that the more that, you know, through our volunteers and everything, like we've been able to have a lot of these conversations and hopefully the idea is always just like, talk about it to whoever you can, you know, answer questions in like a respectful manner and like, uh, you know, just in a way that's not alienating, like we're not judging you because you didn't know, but we're just trying to help you expand your knowledge and understand that like the picture is a lot bigger than you think. Like the, it's kind of that tip of the iceberg thing, right? Like your perception, the normal, um, perception of homelessness is like the tip of the iceberg, but below the surface is all the different factors and things that you rarely have a chance to think about. You know, I get it. We're all dealing with our own problems. We're all trying to survive on our own. We all had to face difficulties and hardships. And for the ones who were able to succeed, like good for you. Like, I hope you know that that's extremely, it's privileged in a lot of ways. Like there are probably things that, <clears throat> Like even for myself, when people are like, you're so like, you know, you're so caring and kind and oh, you're volunteering. What a saint. And it's like, no, like I am afforded opportunities because of this, because I have a job contract that allows me to volunteer and allows me to do these projects. And I have a lot of connections through my job and through, you know, the years of volunteering that I've done to make things happen easier. So I understand that it, I also come from a point of privilege in order to, um, execute these projects in a timely manner, you know? And so didn't just happen out of grit and hard work. Like that's definitely a part of it. But I also realized that like, there are a lot of people supporting me. And so that's hopefully something that I'm like able to get across to people like that. It didn't happen on my own. And it happened because of a community that I've been working to build for the past, like five years, six years. Now, that's a perfect segue because you've written that the common thread in your projects is your desire to build a thriving and fun city for Calgarians to enjoy. I read that as building a great community for people to enjoy. So what does that look like to you? What I want that to look like, like I think in my head, it's like people walking down the street and they're like smiling at each other and they see it. it's very cliche and like, yeah. Um, but I just, I want people to feel comfortable. Like I meet, you know, I do meet a lot of people who are so like, angry, you know, go on Reddit and there's like posts upon posts, like just hating on Calgary. Right. And I just, I think that everybody deserves to have a sense of belonging where they are, wherever they are. And for me, it took, um, going out of my comfort zone and finding this like punk rock community and like finding my place in that. And it evolved into the indie rock scene. It evolved into, you know, it changed my group changed when I traveled and when I went to school elsewhere and learned about social justice and other ways of doing things. And coming back, it was scary because I, I, I just knew that there's something special about Calgary and especially during the flood. That's when I knew I was like, Calgary's not like this corporate horrible person, you know, like it's actually full of heart and you could see that with the 2013 flood, like that's what really encouraged me to come back to Calgary. I was just so inspired by all the volunteers showing up at McMahon stadium being like, I'm ready to help my neighbor, you know? And 
I believe that 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 heart is still there and it's in all of us and it's great to respond to like a natural disaster, but it's even better if we are building those bonds when there isn't one, you know, when it's just a part of our culture of the city. And we have a really strong volunteering culture already. And I just think there's always room for improvement. We can keep doing more. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. And I think I had the same impression. Uh, I wasn't living in Calgary when the flood happened, but I, I came to visit uh, during the flood, which is bad timing. And I was so impressed with the attitudes that mm -hmm. I saw here. And I felt like if every city could be like this, we'd all be better off. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, how do you take uh, what seems to be an almost emergency attitude of like, oh, right, I live in a community. And how do we make that a sustainable everyday thing? Yeah, I think that when... I talk to people about why or why they don't volunteer. A lot of it comes down to time, you know, and to be honest, like a lot of nonprofits that exist are all located in the inner city. A lot of people live in the suburbs. They're already driving home. They're not necessarily wanting to drive back downtown. That's one barrier. Um, another thing is literally just being too burnt out from work, from life to be able to do it. And I know that it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you have bad mental health, just volunteer. And that's not always the solution either, right? Like you really have to work on self-care, like working on yourself on the inside and your mental health and making sure that you're taking care of yourself first before going out and helping others is important in a way because you don't want to burn out. Like I tell our volunteers that all the time at Good Neighbor, like if you are not in a good mental health space, like we don't want to pass that on or like do anything inadvertently because we're having a bad day onto our, onto our customers, you know, cause it's just not the place for that. Like we want to be happy, not happy, but just kind and respectful and not angry, you know, at the system. And it can easily get into that because you see a lot of terrifying and really sad situations. And it's really hard to kind of put on a brave face, especially if you're going, there's something going on inside or you're, you know, struggling to find work or you're struggling through school and so um, I think that it's probably why I'm such a huge proponent of like a universal basic income or like at least for, you know, seniors or students who are, you know, they don't have the same opportunity to work. Um, it would just solve a lot of problems for people and free up some time for them to get back into their communities. And I know that I talk like my wish would be everybody volunteers at least like once a week, but that's also a lot, you know, it's, um, I think even if people like everybody in the city, if 1.3 million people volunteered one day a year, it would make such a huge impact on the city. You know, that's, I don't know, five times a million extra volunteer hours that you normally wouldn't get. So I think that sometimes people get, overwhelmed by the idea where it's like, oh, well, I don't have time to volunteer three hours a week every week until the end of time. And what if I hate it and all that stuff? And it's like, it also doesn't have to be structured volunteering through an organization. You can do stuff for your neighbor. You can just do something kind. I think that that's why that's where the whole thing behind Nenshi's three things for YYC happened, you know, where it's like, just do three kind things, big or small, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's, it's just getting into the habit of being a little bit selfless and thinking about what can I do for somebody who's in a different situation than myself. I, I think even just something as small as, you know what, picking up a piece of trash in the park oh, or whatever, for right? Sure. It, it doesn't have to be hours upon hours, right? No. But I think you're right. It's building that sort of volunteer muscle and that idea of I can do one good deed a day 
maybe. Yeah. Right. And it's just for just to make my city better, you know, just so that it's more enjoyable for somebody else. And at the very least, it's kind of like when you have roommates and there's always dishes in the sink and you're like, oh, they're not doing the dishes. Well, I'm going to hold out and see how long it takes until somebody does it. And it's like, don't damage yourself over it. You know, like just do the dish and you'll be happier for it. And honestly, your roommates will be happier for it too. And so that's kind of the thing. It's like you're doing it not to get an award or to get a pat on the back. It's literally just, it's like you see it in Europe all the time. Like it's very clean and they, people do do that minus the dog poo in France. That's like something that I still don't understand. Dogs just poo everywhere and people don't pick it up. I don't know. It's a thing, but then it's like other litter they're okay with. So I don't know why that's a thing, but you know, it's just, it's our city. We should be proud of it. So we should take care of it. You know, like you would your car, your home, whatever, a, a nice shirt, right? Like this is our city. We should wear it with pride. So what's one idea you'd like to share with everybody in the city that could make the city better? Oh my gosh. I would just love to see like downtown, like we've had so much fun doing like the activation at the fire hall downtown. Um, And it's like a pilot project. We're working with the city and we were able to build a skateboard ramp. We have a little greenhouse. We did this really awesome mural that's just come together And I think it's an idea of just using underutilized spaces, like vacant lots, empty park space, like just let people do stuff there, you know, whether let us put on an all ages show there, you know, why not? Like, this is the thing. It's like, when I think about something that the city needs and the news is always saying, oh, the young people, they're leaving our city. There's nothing for them. I think it's, it's, I was a young person that left the city, but I also came back, you know, and I came back with new ideas and new inspiration and a desire and a passion to like build the city that I want to see. You know, I went and saw what other people were doing in other cities and I was like, that's nice, but I want something different. And so something, a big idea, I guess I would have actually is not about like reutilizing um, underused spaces, but like let kids try stuff, you know, like let kids have an opportunity to plan events, to pilot stuff, to, you know, have a space to gather. Like we just remove the YMCA downtown. The Beltline Community Pool is kind of in the works of a project, but we're not sure what they're going to do with it. But where are kids hanging out these days? You know, it's not the community centers anymore at the punk shows because they stopped us from doing that and that's our fault. But I think that you really need spaces for kids to gather to meet each other from different walks of life, different income levels, different postal codes, um, and just to kind of create their own thing, their own brand of weird, whatever it is at the moment. Um, cause there is definitely a market for it, but there's just not enough places for them to go. Well, all right, Alice. Um, I think we've really rounded the bases here. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't mentioned? No, I think that whenever I, um, watch Ted talks and things like that, I'm always like, man, how did that person do it? And I think for me, if you're sitting at home wondering like, how does this person have all this energy and all these ideas? And it's, it's literally from talking to people and I get a lot of help from other volunteers. Like I'm so lucky and grateful to have this community of people, whether it's through the fridge to Tigerstead, the good neighbor store, like people who are like attentive and ready to help and you just have to ask them. So if you, I think that I also was able to have a lot of like mentorship who like gave me their ideas and how they, you know, did stuff and challenges that they faced. Um, If you have a good idea for Calgary, like go for it, you know, don't let it, 
disappear because we need people like you to grow our city and to make it unique and fun. Like, I don't want to be a carbon copy of Toronto. That's boring. Like, let's do our own thing and make people jealous of Calgary. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So Alice, where can people find you in the various projects you've been doing? So it's mostly on Instagram. Like if you're interested in the historic fire hall activations, it's historicfirehall.com. Otherwise, it's literally instagram.com slash goodneighborYYC, Tigerstead and Friends, uh, Calgary Community Fridge, and Volley App, and chinatownhistory.yyc. That's another thing. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to cut you off there because there's too many. many. There's too many things, yeah. All right, Alice Lam, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We'd also like to acknowledge that Idea City was made on Treaty 7 land and was made possible by Hunter Hub for Social Innovation. This podcast was produced by Work Nicer, Andrew Gilbert, Kurt Archer, Simone Pabretza, and the TEDxYYC graphics team. Music for this podcast is by Sargent and Comrade.